In this podcast, Christine Peterson will focus on how our bodies and our minds work and give you various tips and tricks, tools and techniques for understanding yourself, being happier in yourself and living a better life. Every week, we will discuss different topics that might interest you and help you think differently to then change the way you approach life and yourself. Today, I'm talking with Mason de Chauchon, my friend and colleague who shares many of my interests in how our minds and bodies function and how small changes can make a big difference in how we live our lives. Hello, Mason. How are you today? Fine, thank you. I love this subject. Yes, it's a really, really special subject today. Today, we're going to be talking about happiness. We're going to find out a little bit more about what it is, um, if it's the same for everybody, um, and what we can do to become happier in our daily lives. So we could actually start by asking what it is, and is it the same for you and me? Um, is it the same for everybody? Yeah. Look, um, off the top of my head, really, what, what I'm tempted is to distinguish between, uh, and I'm speaking a bit like a yogi here, between happiness and joy. Uh, um, joy is celebratory. Uh, it's a celebration, it's, and it's pretty transitory because it's momentary. Uh, whereas happiness is, is a state of being. And uh, I, what I sense uh, is that um, uh, happiness, um, if you take a look at the second limb of yoga or the niyama uh, or the observance, uh, which is called santosha, uh, it's commonly understood uh, to mean contentment mm. as opposed to just happiness. And it's interesting, uh, I think, you know, in French, when you say, uh, je suis content, it, instead of being translated as I'm content, it's understood to mean uh, I'm happy. Uh, whereas in French, actually, happiness is also banal. But but being content and being happy, I think, are different. And, and um, I have a little bit of trouble with happiness. I'm glad we're discussing it because I think it's become so overused and therefore pretty vague. Um, uh, whereas for me, contentedness uh, is a state which actually can be achieved if you work towards it. Uh, yoga refers to Santosha as feeling at ease, uh, attaining a peace of mind, mm -hmm. and there are practices which can help you achieve that, <clears throat> such as uh, physical Hatha yoga, Sun-Moon yoga, which is really postural yoga. Uh, and then of course, meditation, which is often talked about relaxation as in yoga nidra, which means yoga sleep, which has itself been responsible. It's the base for the practice of sophrology. Mm. Not so well known, I think, in the States, uh, uh, certainly in the UK, though, and yes, and, and, and the rest of Europe. It's, the, it's really the study of relaxation. And uh, spas now all, because they focus on, on wellness in French, le bien-être, well-being, feeling good, relaxed, and at ease is, is really... Uh, the idea of achieving santosha. Uh, but is this happiness? <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, what is it? What, what, what about you? What does happiness mean to you? Christine? Well, yeah, it's such a big, it's such a big subject. So for me, um, I, before I go into what it means for me personally, I'd like to just look at the definition uh, and what people consider 
happy people. So the definition according to Wiki Wikipedia um, mm. is that it's used in the context of mental or emotional states, including positive or, or pleasant emotions, ranging from contentment, content, content, to intense joy. It's also used in the context of life satisfaction, subjective well-being, flourishing, and in general, well-being. It's what you were saying, the, the bien-être, the well-being. Now, uh, it, the pursuit of happiness, it's a human characteristic, and we're all, we all have this in common. Um, most researchers, in fact, on the topic of happiness agree that both nature and nurture play a role. There was a study in 2005 by Sonia Lubomirsky, Kenan Sheldon and David Schgade, who they devised a happiness pie chart. And this suggested that happiness was made up of 50% genetics, 10% your life circumstance and 40% intentional activities, which goes back to what you were saying, Mason. Now, people who are happy seem to have three things in common, at least three things in common. The first one is that they set the right type of goals. Um, mm -hmm. They pursue goals that connect them with other people um, and help other people to achieve their goals. Uh, and also, of course, uh, satisfaction with your work will make you feel happier in general. So that's in work. They, second thing is that people who are happy tend to accentuate the positive. They're positive people. They look for the positive. They look for the silver lining. Uh, as we know, very few things are completely good or completely bad. Um, so it's a matter of looking for the silver lining, looking for the good in the situation. And finally, happy people tend to forgive other people. So um, over the course of your life, of course, people will tend to do bad things to you. Even the people closest to you may do things that are selfish or, or mean. Now, one thing that happy people do well is to forgive others. Um, and this, this will cause long-term happiness. Now, um, what I would like to do now is talk about the hormones um, that in the body, what, ha what is happening in the body biochemically when we feel happy? And uh, as you know, Mason, hormones is something that I'm, uh, are something I'm very, very interested in. So again, of course, hormones in interact or uh, impact very mm. strongly our, our levels of happiness. Now, there are uh, what we call the happy hormones. There are four happy hormones. Um, and uh, these feel-good hormones tend to be produced by the endocrine system. And these uh, regulate mood, pleasure, bonding, and even pain relief. So if we just take the first hormone, this is serotonin, it's produced mm. in the gut, uh, and of course also in the endocrine system, and it's considered the mood stabilizer. Uh, it helps us have well-being and happiness in, in general. The second one is dopamine, and that's also produced in the gut. Uh, so serotonin, uh, just to talk about more, serotonin is produced in the gut and is also produced by a precursor hormone or a product chemical called tryptophan. And we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about it later. Dopamine is also produced in the gut and it seems to be have a precursor called tyrosine tyrosine. And we'll talk about that. The third one uh, is oxytocin. This again is produced in our gut. Uh, it's also produced by touch, by eye contact, by bonding, uh, by feeling love and by trusting. 
And the final ones are the endorphins. These are produced in the hypothalamus and our pituitary glands. And these are considered pain relief hormones. Uh, it's where we get this runner's high from running. And they also allow us to relax. Now, serotonin um, is one of these hormones that seem to be involved in everything, but responsible for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems that low serotonin has been noted in depression, but it doesn't mean that if you just take serotonin, you will stop being depressed. In fact, uh, there are, can be some serious side effects. So we have to find other ways of getting serotonin. Uh, you can't eat serotonin, but you can boost it, but with food. You can add more prebiotic foods. Remember, it's produced in the gut um, that support the good bacteria, which then produce short chain fatty acids. Um, mm. And it's essential for mood, for digestion, for sleep, for our brain function and for us, our circadian rhythm. Um, it's released into the bloodstream, and this is where it operates as a hormone on the body's tissues. So uh, another, as I was saying before, another factor that influences serotonin is, is, its, is its precursor called tryptophan. This is a substance that our gut can turn into serotonin, and it's an essential amino acid, which means we have to get it from our diet. So foods that are rich in tryptophan are foods like sunflower seeds, peanuts, peanut butter, of course, soybeans, oats, wheat, and quinoa. So also all the prebiotic foods are really good for us because they help our guts produce tryptophan and then, of course, serotonin. So if we go and talk about um, oxytocin, this is what we call the cuddle hormone. It promotes bonding and trust. Uh, it's absolutely very, very active during childbirth for women where it's stimulating the contractions. Um, it's also a neurotransmitter. It helps regulate our stress responses and it calms our nervous system. So it's a great hormone to have when we're feeling stressed. Um, it's, it's also when we are doing something for other people, generosity. Uh, it's what makes some romantic relationships work. Um, and it, it allows for gratitude. Now, it's triggered by closeness. This is why it's called the cuddle hormone. So uh, it happens in response to stimuli that are perceived by the brain um, and could even be produced not just by touch, by, but by eye contact, the right type of eye contact. Um, and if you're feeling stressed, oxytocin can be produced to counterbalance the cortisol that's being produced in the body. Again, uh, oxytocin is also produced in the gut. So we're back to the gut. Um, now, there is a probacteria, bacteria, probiotic bacteria called L. ruteri, and that is shown to increase the body's natural production of oxytocin. So we need probiotics. That's why they're so important in our diet. Um, so one good way of increasing oxytocin and therefore increasing our feel-good feelings, our romance, caring relationships, friendship, soft, friendly touch, and our pets, um, stroking a cat or a dog, and being around people we, we enjoy. Now, Dopamine, this is what we call the motivation molecule. It also makes you happy. It also keeps you alive and alert. Um, now, it, it helps with uh, motor control 
and cognitive function. It helps with motivation and reward. So dopamine is used, for example, um, in addictions, unfortunately. So if we have too much dopamine that's linked to a certain drug or alcohol or certain behavior such as gambling or sex, then that is why we will become addicted to those behaviors. So that's where dopamine, dopamine if you have too much dopamine for a certain thing, uh, then that can become uh, something we don't want to happen as much in the body. Um, it can uh, it can impact our decision making, our impulse control, of course, uh, especially to do with drugs, uh, our memory and our attention spans. Um, and dopamine is also made in the gut. Uh, about 50% of it is made in the gut. Um, and it seems that the microbiome is involved. And again, we're back into probiotics. Now, foods, there's no food that can, in, can increase dopamine. It cannot be found in food. However, we can look at the precursor molecules. And this is where we go to tyrosine. Um, tyrosine is found in food. And uh, what we want to look at is if we can take supplements or have foods that include tyrosine. And again, these are all the prebiotics or probiotics that are great for the gut. And finally, the endorphins, the runner's hormone, as we call it. They make you happy, but not in the way you might think. Uh, they function as painkillers. They inhibit the transmission of pain signals in the central nervous system. Um, and uh, you can boost them by running or, or doing other strong exercise. Now, uh, endorphins bind to the receptors of the central nervous system, whereas dopamine is, uh, is released by the nervous system. So they are linked, but they're not the same. Now, uh, endorphins can also produce euphoria. So this is this runner's high people talk about. If you've been running and you stop running, you come home, you feel this feeling of euphoria. Um, and then once the dopamine then goes in and says, oh, this is really good, then you get hooked on running or whatever other exercise that's creating the euphoria. So happiness hormones are actually a reflect, reflection of your environment, your relationships, your diet, exercise, and in some, in some cases, even your gut microbes. So if you take care of your gut bacteria and your diet, you're also taking care of your happiness. Um, by the, what would you be eating? It's the usual thing, fiber-rich plant foods, a little bit of meat, a little bit of fat, um, and these produce the bacteria that produce acetate and butyrate. These are the bacteria that help us uh, produce the, the happy hormones. And uh, the problem today is the Western diet is full of refined carbs, fast food, and lots of meat. And that's less beneficial to our bacteria. So we have to just look at that. Of course, also regular fitness really helps. It boosts mood, it relieves anxiety, and it can combat depression. So uh, exercise, of course, also promotes tryptophan and our serotonin levels. So the usual stuff, eat well, exercise and sleep properly. <laughs> yeah, but that's, I mean, it's fascinating. You really break it down and, and it's very rarely dealt with. Even, I mean, we're talking yeah. about happiness and people don't usually make that connection. Yeah. Uh, we, usually we just look at the psychological aspects of happiness um, without realizing their, their physical counterparts. At any rate, the topic seems to be receiving now, recently, I don't know, the last few years, a lot of attention. 
and uh, we we know or it is known that um, Gallup world there's a Gallup world happiness poll which tracks the most important issues worldwide uh, and I was interested in this I mean you know how how do you do that for countries and they track things like um, uh, they're, they're, they're pretty um, consistent and serious about it. They track food access, uh, employment, um, uh, the leadership in, uh, in, in countries, uh, um, the well-being of, of the population. And since creating the World Pool in 2005, I think Gallup has conducted more than studies, more studies in, in about 160 countries. Uh, and that includes, uh, their studies include 99% of the world's adult population. Wow. Now, uh, currently from the pool, what's emerged is that Finland is now the world's happiest country hmm. and Afghanistan is the least happy. And this is actually, Afghanistan was already the least happy country well before the Taliban hmm. uh, took over recently. Hmm. So um, it simply pushed it down further. Uh, on an individual basis, there's, there's also an index, it's the Cantrell Index, which ranks uh, feelings, moods, uh, states of mind and so on on a scale of one to 10, uh, but it's, it's very subjective, of course. And then there's a ladder uh, also on a scale of one to 10, where you can sit down and, and uh, uh, depict uh, uh, life uh, satisfaction. Um, so, um, and we know also that moods change, states of mind change and so on. So none of this is necessarily fixed um, on a long-term basis. Uh, that's why these, uh, these surveys take place year to year. Um, but um, I'm just I'm just thinking. I mean, if we want to be happy, um, uh, should we all move to Finland? Is this is this what <laughs> is this going to ensure our happiness? Is this the recipes for happiness? And I know that you have a Danish background, so here you are, uh, someone who's somewhat Nordic. Do you think we should all uh, move to Finland? Will this do it? <laughs> well, I don't think so. Uh, well, number one, um, I would move to Den. If I had to move to the north, I would move to Denmark, which I think is number two or three on the happiness index. So it's not far yeah, behind. However, I think that um, you have to be very careful. It's all very subjective. Uh, happiness, I believe, is it, it, it depends a little bit of where on where you live, and I think it depends a lot on on your circumstances and your attitude, and and how things how how you live. Now, I think that if we moved somewhere, we would probably have a, a euphoric phase, which we all do when we move somewhere new. And then the the reality will set in, and I think unhappiness will be probably quite high for a while until we find a balance. So I would not I would not move to Finland just to to find <laughs> happiness. I think we can find happiness wherever we live uh, by changing what we do and and our attitude to life. Yeah, I think so too. And you're right. There's always a honeymoon phase when you move somewhere, and then it, it tapers off. Um, there's a lot of uh, talk uh, on, on uh, Mathieu Ricard. He's a renowned expert and author on compassion and happiness. Um, he's quite a guy. I mean, he's about 75 now. He's a, he was a, he's a Buddhist monk living in Nepal, but he's also a writer. He's a photographer. Uh, he also has a PhD in molecular genetics hmm. um, from the Institut Pasteur, and he received that in 72. Well, he took part in seminal research uh, in the connections between neuroscience and and Santosha contentment. And he's considered by those academics and people who look at these studies as the happiest man on earth. Wow. And so they so they so they asked him, you know, come up with tips. And and there are a few things which which I found interesting. One is um 
he reminds us that happiness is not composed simply of pleasurable experiences, um, uh, which, in fact, which he even says would be a recipe for exhaustion. Uh, he says that happiness is, is a way of being and a state of mind which, uh, which is steady because he's interested in leading to resilience. Mm. And he tells us, uh, because he's interested in neuroscience and neuroplasticity, that we can train our minds to be happy, uh, uh, especially via meditation. Um, and, and you, Christine, you, you've studied and worked with people's attitudes and expectations. I know you've worked a lot with expectations. Yes. And, and you know, more, I mean, like we all have heard, but you know better than, than anybody that you can, some people can regard, look at the same glass and look at it and will decide it's half empty. <laughs> and then the optimists or the people who are happy will say it's half full. And this makes all the difference. Uh, talk mm. to us a little bit about that. It really does make all the difference. Now, uh, there's a slogan that apparently originated in 12-step programs, and this says, mm. unrealistic expectations are premeditated resentments. Mm. And I really like that because expectation is really the oil that uh, that connects all our relationships with other people. We have constant expectations of other people and of ourselves, yeah. of course. Now, many of us at some point, we mistakenly believe that expecting other people to behave the way we want will actually make them behave that way. Uh, for example, one member of a couple <laughs> might expect yes. the other to make coffee, right? This is fine. Yeah if the other person is happy to make coffee. But what happens if the other person has no interest in living up to that expectation? Well, we'll feel shocked, morally indignant, and we'll feel resentful. So unrealistic expectations are premeditated resentments. Expecting life to always turn out the way you want is guaranteed to lead to disappointment and thus unhappiness, because life will not always turn out the way you want it to, as we know. And when those unfulfilled expectations involve the failure of other people to behave the way you expect them to, the disappointment also involves resentment. And that's terrible. We start to resent the other people around us. Sure. Now, expectations among people are often based on an implicit social contract. Now, what I mean by that is that without actually verbalizing our expectations about a give and a take in a relationship, people will construct stories in their heads about what they think they can legitimately expect from one another. So people in a relationship will have a, a deal in which the, the specifics of the deal are never really talked about. They will expect something from me, I will expect something from them, but we forgot to talk about it. Now, it's very hard for someone to live up to your expectations when they don't know what they are, because I haven't told them. Yeah. And we may still see this failure as a violation of our social contract. We expect people to know what we expect of them. For example, uh, I might expect that when, if I take time to listen to a friend's problems, then they will be there for me when I need a friend to listen to me. Now, this doesn't always happen. And this can cause me to feel resentful and misunderstood. So expectation, ex expectations have a very, very large role to play in how we feel, how we feel with other people, how we feel about other people. So I suppose we need to think about trying to 
have less expectations of other people and maybe even less expectations of ourselves. Yeah, this is this is such a fascinating subject. I think we, we should actually dedicate a whole podcast to it. Yeah, I'd at like some that. point in the future. Um, uh, and this, I'm just what's coming to mind is Paulo Coelho in one of his books talked about the favor bank. When someone does something for you, uh, it's really a question of emotional intelligence. When someone does something for you, he's he's giving you favors, and if you don't pay back those favors, he's putting favors into into your deposit your favor bank deposit. Mm. And if you're not aware of that and you're not giving back and you don't keep a positive balance in your favor bank deposit, um, you're going to get in trouble, lose friends and so on. But it's, it's getting off the subject, but it's fascinating. It really mm. is fascinating. Absolutely. So, so yes, happiness is, is predicated upon uh, attitudes. And, and uh, what comes up for me now is that um, the Dalai Lama goes to great lengths. He really does to explain that, um, uh, what we receive um, is going to uh, uh, have much less pleasure for for even for us than what we give. So giving is is much more important mm. and more pleasurable. And um, it's not that's not something which I think people would find immediately mm. obvious. But there's actually science behind it. Um, mm -hmm. There have been studies about happiness the happiness level of people who, who gave money to charities or and, and volunteered their time. And it seems that across the board, uh, these studies always point to, to special happiness that these people have, people who give. And, and there's one, um, you know, it's been a while now, it's a 2002 survey by the National Opinion Research Center, um, which is a, a general social survey. And they noted at that time that 43% of the people who gave blood two or three times a year were very happy, as opposed to the 29% who didn't. Hmm. Um, and then uh, the Journal of Health Psychology published a study in 2012, it's a little more recent, that found people um, who regularly volunteer live longer. Uh, but there is a catch. Uh, they had to do that, or they, these people did, generally speaking, did it for unselfish reasons. Uh, so if you, if you volunteer for any reason beyond or besides you know, the joy of giving, uh, it doesn't have the same long-term effect. And then uh, what's also in, across the board, the giving, and this makes sense, giving increases our social connectedness. And it makes sense when we give to others, they feel closer to us. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and um, we may not realize it, but uh, the giving to others also makes us feel closer to them and so on. And um, you've mentioned this woman, Sonia uh, Lyubormiski. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, she has a book, The How of Happiness. And she writes in this book, being kind and generous leads to you or leads you to perceive others more positively and more charitably. And this fosters a heightened sense of interdependence and cooperation in your social community. So uh, it's all studies also go on to say that, that um, giving therefore uh, battles depression. And the reason it does that is because of social connectedness, uh, mm -hmm. contributing uh, and giving um, uh, alleviates your feeling of, of isolation. So, um, yeah, it's, it's um, definitely uh, very important. And, and that attitude is, is, uh, is I think, uh, now scientifically backed up. Um, so, uh, 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 you, um, I think you feel, you feel that as well. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Uh, I was, and, yeah, go ahead. Um, it just when you're speaking, I was one example was coming to mind, just a very basic example. If you're in traffic 
and you let a car in in front of you, it makes you feel good. And it makes the other person feel good normally. Um, Unless you're you're in a real hurry. Unless you're in a real hurry, then you wouldn't notice probably, yes. No, but then you wouldn't let them in. And you wouldn't let them in, exactly, yeah. yeah. So the car behind you is is angry. The car car behind you might be angry, yes, exactly. (laughs) Whereas you're feeling pretty good because you've you've done a charitable act for somebody else. And it's just so simple. I think this is where one of the things we could think about is to try and do one thing a day, to 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 give rather than yeah. to receive and yeah. and that will just keep topping up our, our happiness levels daily so yes um how about wrapping up our discussion by examining some of the thoughts of tal ben shahar oh uh, yeah. devoted his life to the study and practice of happiness totally yes yeah um yeah in fact it's it's great to actually you could i don't think you could pick anyone better than that mm. um he's been my hero for a long time mm. um if, uh, well, okay for those who i mean not everyone is acquainted with him but um to introduce him um tal ben shahar he's an american and is he's american and israeli um mm-hmm. uh, he was born in israel uh, he's a teacher and a writer uh, and he really developed a lot of areas of positive psychology and leadership Mm-hmm. And when he was a lecturer at Harvard, um, uh, which he was for a long time, he created the most popular course in Harvard's history. It dealt with how to achieve uh, happiness. Yeah, we're all looking for it, right? In fact, yeah. Shahar is a great teacher. Uh, and what maybe speaks to me the most is that he's extremely serious when it comes to research. Yeah. And um, he considers his teachings about happiness, which of course are part of the field of positive psychology, as you were saying, um, it's as a science. So he calls it the science of happiness. Yes. And, and this really interests me because instead of considering happiness as an art, he explains that there is mm. now a great deal of scientific backing on this topic. Yes, yes, yeah, that's that's quite true. Um, uh, and and um, he he goes into it uh, in great depth and in detail. And, and there's certain things that really stand out. He states, for example, that achieving goals. Um, but Mathieu Ricard also said, said that it's interesting. Achieving success, which he has achieved. Mm. He was a real he's a real academic. Yeah. Achieving goals, achieving success, which which so many of us think leads to happiness, uh, only succeeds in, in giving us temporary pleasure. Uh, and in fact, I, I remember now, because um, his life interests me, he realized this very early. Um, uh, the, the guy is incredible because he was good. He was good in sports and, and he's, he's obviously brilliant. Um, so when he was, um, I think he was 15 years old, um, and I think he was still in Israel, he, he was very, very good at squash. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he was. Uh, he decided that he wanted to become the junior squash champion of the world. Wow! So he pra- he really practiced, obviously, and he was talented. And he finally, I think, at the age of seventeen, uh, he did it. He became the junior squash champion of the world. Wow! And what, he, what he wrote, he said, "Look, he felt really happy, supremely happy, but only for about three days, <laughs> you know." And and his joy began to taper <laughs> off. And this, okay, this happens. Now this prompted him to investigate and study what happiness is all about. Uh, uh, and this is what really got him going. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, then, and then he went, he, he got into Harvard and I think he had a, 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 a double doctorate in psychology and philosophy, but, but he, he wanted to know what is it all about? 
what's it all about, Alfie? So um, he believes that certain core elements constitute happiness. Uh, talks, he talks a lot about relationships, for example, strong, intimate relationships. Mm -hmm. But what's also interesting, and he's very well read, he's also he's got a doctorate in philosophy. So he references Waldo Emerson's concept of a beautiful enemy. Now, what the heck is that? Hmm. Um, uh, what he explains is that if you only cultivate relationships that are easy, and reflect your existing views, and, and you, you know you you collect around you people who always agree with you. Yes, people. Um, he feels that those relationships uh, uh, are not going to really contribute to your growth. What you what you what the beautiful enemies are are the people who do not. Uh, always agree with you, but sometimes maybe even often give rise to friction. It's that friction which allows you to grow and develop. Um, and uh, this reminds me, you know, of, of my yoga background, of something which which doesn't have to do with relationships, but is a physical example of friction. I remember uh, that very often in my yoga classes, I would have people sit and people were comfortable at that point. And I would ask them to sense their bodies and really get into their bodies and really begin to sense that although, generally speaking, they're relaxed and attentive, the bodies were sending mixed signals. Um, as we're not mm. um, robots, uh, some parts of their bodies, our bodies, even though we're experiencing ease and peace, uh, are, 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 are feeling wonderful, but others are feeling tight and uncomfortable. And sometimes they even have a little bit of pain somewhere. Mm. So um, this is a reminder that even when you're feeling generally good, it's not a constant and it's not a uniformly spread uh, feeling. Mm. Yeah, that is true. Now, as Shahar points out, it's extremely important to feel gratitude for everything that's going right in your life. Yeah. Um, he even mentions Mathieu Ricard, who, of course, has written about how looking at things positively and seeing the glass half full rather than half empty on a repeated daily basis will change your perspective on life and contribute to happiness. Uh, now, the key, he says, is to cultivate a positive attitude and positive emotions and to do it on a consistently repeated basis. It's been shown that the application of positive thinking and feeling actually increases creativity and productivity. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting how it's reflected, it's protected mm. by Ricard, who says it has to be repeated mm. and so on. Um, uh, interesting how I'm discovering that you are also a fan of mm. Shahar. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, well, here's this man who's devoted his life to this, actually. Um, uh, central to Shahar's teaching, I think, at any rate, is this concept of uh, MPS. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Oh, absolutely. MPS. <laughs> Wonderful. I oh, yeah. love this. Meaning, pleasure, strength. MPS. So basically, he says the route to happiness is doing things that are meaningful which provide you with pleasure and which you are inherently good at, strength. Yeah, I, I, what's interesting to me about that is that, that um, and I see it almost as, I see it actually in my mind as, as three overlapping circles, Venn diagrams. Mm. And what he says, which is interesting, is that, that when you have um, things, because there are things in your life that are meaningful, but not necessarily which give you pleasure, uh, uh, or that you're particularly good at, but if you have, and then so if you have something which which is meaningful to you, and then you have some that same activity, that same practice, um, also uh, provides you with pleasure. Uh, uh, and he gives examples of this. And he talks about his own life, but we're not going to talk about him endlessly. But anyway, hmm. um, and you're and you're inherently good at it. Uh, then uh, that 
there's that that sweet spot where the three things come together and that he he says which makes enormous sense that when these three elements overlap mm. meaning pleasure and your strengths then then you're happy that's that's Absolutely. the sweet spot the happiness center it's like playing tennis and, and hitting a ball exactly in the center oh, of your racket you know and joy. so um, yeah. <laughs> So, Christine, tell, tell us, you, you must have, obviously you do have moments in your life when you cho- or you've chosen practices and activities where life, where those three come together. Um, give us yeah. some examples and tell us about that. Well, uh, one example that comes to mind is uh, I sing in a choir and mm. um, it's something that I, it gives me meaning um, because it's with other people uh it's something that gives me pleasure to do and um and it keeps my thursday evenings busy so when i come home from a, a choir practice i actually feel really good and so i think in the one sense it, it gives meaning it gives me pleasure to sing and of course um also by singing you are um filling your lungs with with air with oxygen and mm. that's being carried around to your whole body so it's known that when you are singing you you feel good you can almost get to a feeling of euphoria because there's all this oxygen being carried around so there's a lot of pleasure in it and and when when you're good at it so i'm reasonably okay reasonably good at it uh, lucky you <laughs> yeah then uh, it, it 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 becomes a pleasure also to do it the, it's more pleasure than pain put it that way unless i'm just at the beginning of learning a new song um so i would say that in the venn diagram of meaning pleasure and strength then the choir singing is probably up there uh, probably uh, especially when we are singing concerts, which we haven't, of course, been doing for the last year and a half. Uh, but when we were and when we will be singing concerts again, then that definitely hits the, the sweet spot. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I would be a listener because I, I mean, I, I, can do some, I can do some kirtan chanting. Ah, um, okay. But, yeah. but, but others are <laughs> si- si- singing, no, I forget it. I wouldn't consider myself a great singer. So look, um, this is pretty good. We've discussed a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are we going to take away from this? What what can we sum up? Uh, Why don't you start by telling us what you think that we can take away from today's discussion? So I think um, one of the things I remember when happiness was considered a state of mind that we sometimes felt or or an art that really wasn't easy to create. It was just something Mm -hmm. we didn't really know what to do to feel happy. It just happened. Now it's considered a science. And of course, that means that happiness can be created and and engineered, in fact. Uh, This means that happiness is something we can learn to build and maintain. Of course, not every day, every moment of the day, um, but more often than not. No, that's great. It's great. Precisely because we can actually create it. And uh, as it's a state of mind, which we can create by cultivating certain attitudes, as Ricard says, and, and Tal Shahar says this as well, uh, these attitudes which are repeated and maintained on, on a consistent basis, mm. uh, the, uh, the neuroplasticity of the mind is affected. That's great. Mm. And in particular, what I, what I really take away, which is important, um, and it has to do with expectations as well, and looking at the glass half full, mm. as opposed to half empty, gratitude. Mm. Um, we're told that gratitude is something which will work wonders. Um, 
And simply uh, the act of being thankful for what we have, appreciating what life has given to us, will cause our, our brain to work in our favor. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll start really appreciating uh, the, the positive rather than the negative. And it has to be done, what's interesting is it has to be done on a daily basis. And Shahar talks about, you know, uh, actually keeping a diary, for example, mm. um, which which is interesting. But um, that to me is is makes makes a great deal of sense. And it's extraordinary how around us and, and the news and so on, uh, we always are so easily fall into complaining or hearing about complaints. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think gratitude is, is, is a real takeaway. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, and this is where we go into habits. And if we can get into the habit of being grateful and being happy with what we have, then that's what we will feel. Now, we can, of course, also deliberately tweak our hormones. Uh, we can support our biochemistry in such a way that we can experience happiness. And we spoke about the gut as being a very, very large factor. So we should be looking at probiotics and prebiotics. So trying also to eat really healthily um, and creating more of the, of the different happiness chem chemicals in the gut. Yeah, the, precisely that whole area, uh, which I think is which is which is very very interesting mm. because most people don't don't talk much about it and and very important. Mm. And then we just basically we just discussed it, but I think it is really the takeaway. Mm. Shahar has done it for us. He's oh, created this yeah. MPS paradigm, uh, meaning, pleasure, and strengths, and and so. Um, uh, and this has helped me enormously to to realize that if I can overlap that. Uh, um, overlap the activities in our lives or if I can overlap what's meaningful uh, for me gives me pleasure and plays to my strengths uh, that is, is I mean I'm mm. swimming uh, downstream and I'm swimming upstream and uh, at that point if we're doing that um, in our work we're doing it in our play and how we interact with others um, there's a good chance that we will be creating building mm. and maintaining our own happiness mm. Absolutely, Mason. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Mason, for today. This was really interesting and very enlightening. And I hope that our listeners feel the same. And yeah. uh, the list, everybody can, uh, you can go on uh, the description of the podcast episode and have a look at all the references. And of course, you can also contact us. Uh, the contact details are there. So feel free. So Mason, thank you very much for today. Pleasure. I, I loved this. This is wonderful. Me too. Uh, um, it's quite a, quite a great discussion. Uh, we should do more of this. This is wonderful. Thank you. We will. We will. Have a wonderful afternoon. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. You've been listening to A Toolkit for a Better Life, produced by Christine Peterson. For more information and details on how to contact us, please see the podcast description.